Welcome in. It is Downtown the Podcast, episode number 36. I'm Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell at our Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine. Our daily radio show, Downtown, originates from here every weekday afternoon, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on WZON, WKIT, HD3. Streaming audio available on the WZON app as well as uh, on our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you every week on the podcast by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A couple of interesting conversations this week on the program. David Roth of Deadspin and Jay Jaffe. He might be the premier expert there is on the Baseball Hall of Fame and who ought to be in. Of course, we'll find out what the writers think in less than two weeks now, but we had a chance to talk with Jay about some of the candidates, some of the possibilities for entrance into Cooperstown. First, though, uh, as always, a wide-ranging conversation. One of our favorite guests on the show, a very funny and talented writer for Deadspin. He hosts the Deadcast as well. Here's our recent conversation with David Roth. We've butt-dialed one of our favorite guests on the show, David Roth of Deadspin. Hello, David. Hi, Rich. How are you? It's nice to have another person uh, knowingly on the line with me. What's going on? Your dad's uh, having a problem with technology here? Uh, I mean, that's kind of a, that's been a decades-long struggle for him. But yes, today I was telling Carrie before he came on that um, during the 10 or 15 minutes before we spoke, uh, my dad was calling me without knowing uh, just three times in 15 minutes, which is a lot even for him. He's got a new phone, and I think he's kind of breaking it in. Well, I want to start with a fairly serious topic here. Usually we go on the lighter side of things, but but I think this is important. I, is it safe to say that you believe the olive bar at your local supermarket is an accurate microcosm of America in 2019? Ah, I mean, it certainly uh, points to all of the different problems that New York City has just in terms of livability. I'm, first of all, I'm pleased that you've been listening to the dead cast. It makes me happy. <laughs> of course. Uh, it's a story that I told that I was embarrassed about, in part because it involves an old lady elbowing me in the throat, uh, which is not the sort of thing that one usually brags about. But it's real. It happened. But she wanted olives more than me that day. Well, the supermarket in general, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Man, it's a war zone out there. Some of the worst behavior you'll see. And it's not even just in the store. It's in the parking lot with people jockeying for position. The parking lot stuff has always been, living in a city that doesn't have as much of a car culture, I have sort of, I've forgotten this. I mean, it was a fact of life. I grew up in New Jersey. Like Every possible space in that state is uh, like basically somewhere you can have an argument or are actively having an argument. That's how people understand it. The parking lot stuff, though, it, all these years I'd kind of let that memory atrophy. And then I was up in uh, in Maine, actually, around the holiday. And I'll tell you, it's a lot of really nice people. But once you get them near a Shaw's, it just really changes. <laughs> oh, there's no question about that. Well, yes, you did spend some time in Maine, as you, as you do uh, every year around the holidays. How was your visit? You know, as soon as you left... We went and got us a new governor, so we're not we're not a punchline anymore. Yeah, I don't want to take all the credit for that, but I do appreciate you uh, pointing to the work I did on that, <laughs> uh, which I think involved, the, you know, like whatever, two tweets over eight years about uh, Paul LePage looking like he was melting or something. The uh, Yes, my, I, my mother-in-law was extremely pleased by that. I think my father-in-law was too, but uh, she tends to bring up LePage um, more often. I think more often 
than most people on average. Uh, but yeah, it seems nice. It was not as scenic as past Maine Christmases, but it was also, uh, you know, delightful experience at the Portland Jet Port, as always. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I like being up there for Christmas. It's easy as a non-Christian to split these holidays up with my wife, who is. And so I'm still kind of a stranger in a strange land there, but I enjoy eggnog and decorated trees and all that. It, uh, however touristic it is, I always enjoy it. I have to go back to something that was on the dead cast too, and uh, yeah, I won't even go near the whole pancake debate or or French toast. But uh, what's what's your problem with yogurt? I myself do not have a significant problem with yogurt. Uh, I just, except for the fact that I don't really feel like eating it ever, um, and I think it's for babies. But uh, beyond that, I think it's useful in in cooking and all of that. That was. Uh, the thing that I was most maybe taken aback by there was my, my former editor-in-chief, now the editor-in-chief of Special Products, or Special Projects at uh, GMG, Tim Marchman, is a fanatical yogurt adherent. And I was sort of just surprised by the, the passion of his argument on behalf of full-fat Greek yogurt. <laughs> I, just, I haven't heard him be that excited about, certainly about anything having to do with work. I mean, I respect it. I was just uh, taken aback. I understand. Uh, we're talking with David Roth of Deadspin here. Uh, let's talk a little baseball. If I'm, if I'm reading correctly in a piece you posted this week, you're telling me that even the bad baseball owners have money to spend. Well, it's strange, isn't it? Uh, yes. <laughs> the, <laughs> the reason, part of the reason that I wrote that was just that I am frustrated by all the sort of pedophagery surrounding Manny Machado and Bryce Harper and this idea that teams keep coming up with more unconvincing reasons why they can't sign to obvious future Hall of Famers that would make their teams much better. But what I learned, I, I wrote the, uh, the team essay for the Pittsburgh Pirates in the Baseball Perspective annual this year, which will be out sometime in the next couple months. And that team is, I had always just sort of associated them with this consciously cheap, middle-tier you know, organization, and they'd been, they were bad for a long time. It looked like they were almost going to get good. They didn't spend, and then they kind of got mediocre again. What I didn't know is that their owner is fantastically rich, and that they, is, you know, the 10th richest owner, according to Forbes' accounting, anyway, in the major leagues, the family is worth well more than a billion dollars. And the team itself has continued to shrink its payroll down to now they're basically in the Tampa Bay Rays neighborhood, like the nice part of the Rays neighborhood, but still that neighborhood. <laughs> And there's just no reason for it. I mean, they had a shot, a real shot a few years ago at doing what the Brewers did this year and making a respectable push towards the World Series. Just opted out. And as usual with these BP essays, they tend to give me depressing teams every year, I think, just because it's fun to watch me get mad. <laughs> I wound up getting quite heated about it. It was really frustrating. It's one thing when the Mets are just owned by incompetence. The team had a real shot and just didn't shoot it. Did you hear the news about the Tampa Bay Rays today who who don't draw flies to their games and now they're they're getting rid of some of the seats at the trop but they're getting rid of the cheap seats so if we're only going to yeah. get 20,000 people or 15,000 let's at least make them pay. Savvy play there. Got to respect it. That's just that's veteran economics there because if you want to try to develop a fan base and you don't have a fan base what you got to do is make the tickets extremely expensive and hard to obtain. <laughs> That's just basic. I don't. I know. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. No, no, that's a common business strategy, right there. It's so puzzling to me. I mean, especially. I, it's not puzzling. I mean, you know what they're trying to do. 
but there's something about the idea of like it, it just seems like it was not devised by anyone that was a baseball fan like you know i don't know about the the owners or the executives upbringing or whatever but as a child going to baseball games if there weren't such things as five or eight dollar seats i wouldn't have gone and it wasn't because my family was you know penniless or anything like that it's just you know you take a kid to a baseball game and you have to throw all kinds of garbage at them in order to make them sit there throughout the game for a while anyway and then that diminishes as they either begin to care about baseball or don't but those i mean i stuck with this stupid team for 40 years against certainly against my better judgment but i mean against the advice of a lot of people that care about me and it's all because of the fact that i was there when i was seven years old on a five dollar ticket with my parents the idea that the rays are passing on that is puzzling to me well, we make those attachments, and, and then even teams that are successful, you know, like World Championship successful. Now, the Red Sox made the, well, it wasn't a formal announcement, but said sort of offhand at the beginning of the offseason, yeah, we've we've really got to consider cutting payroll. They've got a license to print money there at both the ballpark and with uh, their cable network, but they're talking about cutting back, which now appears to be nothing more than a strategy to try and uh, get Craig Kimbrell down to a, a more affordable salary. Yeah, which is, I mean, and I suppose it's business is business. It's not like there was a time when baseball owners were, you know, decent or happy to pay people what they were worth. I mean, the Red Sox were one of the two teams that actually went above the the luxury tax threshold last year, which teams everywhere else just decided to sort of treat it as a de facto salary cap. And I think I was surprised, most surprised in writing about uh, the sort of cheap, cheesy off-season stuff that we've had so far, is that the, the penalty that the Red Sox paid for going over was nothing. I mean, it was $12 million, and they moved down 10 slots in the June draft. But as somebody at Over the Monster pointed out, which uh, is a good Red Sox blog, that $12 million is what the team paid Rusny Castillo to play at Pawtucket. That's right. It's nothing. <laughs> and the idea that, you know, I understand that teams don't want to pay more. But, like, I, you know, neither do I. I still, like, I have, and yet if I were to start showing up at work and clothes with, like, larger holes or more conspicuous stains in them, I, I think people would get justifiably upset. Uh, speaking of baseball, I was uh, smiling this week as you brought up the legendary Lou Ford and made the connection between Lou Ford and uh, that noted political maverick, Mitt Romney. <laughs> maverick Mitt. Certainly um, one of the most reckless and freewheeling of our public Americans. Uh, <laughs> what was the network that referred to him and Ben Sassy as uh, yeah. Was it the NBC or something like that? I, I the think incoming so. Senate Mavericks replacing the other guys that act upset when they vote for whatever it is that Trump feeds them. When I see was, Mitt Romney in his dad jeans, in my head I hear he's a rebel. He is. I mean, you see it. You're <laughs> imagining him. Stepping off a motorcycle, being like, "What are you rebelling against?" <laughs> the, he, the video that uh, this is, you know, a couple of hops down late night Twitter, but there's a video from the, the Netflix documentary about Mitt's campaign, in which he attempts to iron a shirt cuff while he is wearing that shirt, <laughs> while various members of his family are like, "Don't do that, dude. That's a really bad idea." And he's like, "Oh, I can, I can do it." And it reminded me of a story that I'd actually written about during the postseason, which was that John Smoltz was famously written about as having done the same thing back when he was with the Braves. And he was already an all-star by then or whatever, but it was like some 
news of the weird thing that appeared in the journal Constitution. <laughs> and the stories followed him for 25 years. It, he says it is totally false. And there's a similar story about Lou Ford, my as a true guy to remember, and a Long Island Ducks legend closer to me, <laughs> uh, who's who may actually have done the same thing. I believe he also denied it, but I think that the reporting was better on that one. Either way, it's it's almost certain that Mitt Romney is the only person ever to have attempted to iron a shirt while he was doing it. But that's that's why it's Maverick. Exactly. Hey, well, what's the best story in the NBA this year from your perspective? I uh, so this is recency bias, I'm sure. Uh, and I, for me, like Harden has been great. I have been fascinated by how good Paul George is, and blown away by how good Paul George has been. I the Thunder are not a team that I ever think that I really want to watch because I sort of associate them with like I think uh, Russell Westbrook is way more compelling to think about than to watch play basketball for the most part. And he hasn't been great this year, and he's been sort of the the less efficient uh, version of himself. But George has been, every time I've seen him, has looked uh, as good as any player in the NBA. And I think some of that's just that he's played, you know, in comparative media backwaters for his whole career or whatever. I am, I'm constantly surprised to the extent where I should probably not be surprised anymore by how great he's been. Harden has been fantastic, but is also still kind of hell to watch. <laughs> George is awesome. He reminds me of the Grady. I have to ask you about uh, the president. Of course, we would be remiss in not bringing him up, but especially uh, what went on over the holidays with him. Uh, apparently, I, I just I picture it as like the really bad sequel to Home Alone. President <laughs> uh, there in the White House somewhere with only a phone and nothing else to do with his time. I had a similar thought. I mean, it really, it, I don't know what he does most days anyway, if we're being honest. I mean, yes, it was clear that like by choosing not to go, down to Mar-a-Lago, where he could uh, congratulate and be congratulated by a series of thrice-divorced plastic surgeons that constitute his friend group. Uh, obviously, that was a sacrifice on his part. But at the same time, him just like rattling around an empty warehouse, a warehouse, White House, with the with Fox News on every television, anywhere he in every room he entered, just seems. I mean, it seems like it would be specifically the version of hell that would be devised for me if I were to really not get my act together over the next however many years I've got. But it also is just, it, as with a lot of things with him, like there's something almost sad about it until you realize that there's really kind of nothing to pity there, that this is 100% his choice, his devising. Maybe it was uh, the time he had last week is when he learned all of his expertise on drones. Drones. He's gotten really good at drones. Uh, my new favorite Trump trope, which, uh, you know, these two tend to cycle in and out. I love his claiming expertise on technological things, which is always great. His new thing is uh, he likes to bring up wheels in connection with the wall. <laughs> right. Where he's like, walls work. Wheels work. We don't, and you can kind of see, like, if you, depending on, on where you situate him on the continuum of cognitive decline, which, you know, I'm not a doctor. Uh, I know a lot about drones, but I don't know that much about what might be going on inside of his head. I think the idea that those two words kind of are similar to each other <laughs> has a, a great deal to do with their appeal to him. But the idea that, like, simply because, uh, you know, some of your famous empires, uh, the Roman Empire, which, of course, still stands today, famously built uh, a lot of really great walls, that, like, because that is the same thing as a wheel, which is still a concept we have. I don't, 
I can't follow it all the way. I can get like 75% of the way there, and then I just get so tired. I think you're right, though, and I, I think it's just another step on the path that if it goes on a whole lot longer, he'll be down to one-word sentences. Yeah, which is, I mean, honestly, would be a blessing. Like, if he just communicated through a series of, like, clicks and snarls, I think that uh, the discourse would improve by, you know, 100% or so. It's just, I, I don't know, man. I mean, the stuff today, we're talking about how he wants to keep the, the government closed for months or years. It's not even clear what he wants or how you could even give it to him. I think that a great deal of this is tied up in his personal weirdnesses and he's had all life to work those out and he hasn't done it. I think eventually if the Democrats just order, offer him like a, like a little miniature of the, the great wall of China, you know, just like a keychain <laughs> miniature, go here, here's your wall and that will satisfy him. He'll be happy. That's, that's the dream. I mean, eventually if you just wait and then at some point, like, Two weeks from now, he's holding up a John Wall Wizards jersey, and he's like, "We did it, folks! <laughs> Terrific! Wow. Here it is." I, somebody like, posted this on there. Somebody put it on Twitter, and it was great. I, either that, or the miniature Stonehenge from Spinal Tap. Who <laughs> <laughs> uh, who they were? <laughs> it would be an exciting uh, time if they thought that would work. And I have this feeling that he's just the thing that he wants is to take something from somebody that they don't want to give him. And so I don't know how you get to yes with that. It's like a, trying to get a child a nap or something like that. I think at some point you just have to wait until he gets too tired to do anything else. <laughs> well, fingers crossed for that. Uh, David Roth of Deadspin and the Deadcast. Always great to talk with you, my friend. Happy New Year to you if it's not too late in 2019 to say that. And uh, we look forward to not catching up with you again very soon. And especially now that you know we've got a different governor, we can talk more often. It'll be nice. David Roth of Deadspin here on Downtown, the podcast. When we come back, we'll talk some baseball with Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs. But first, this word from our sponsors, our good friends at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Welcome back to Downtown, the podcast, episode 36. Our next guest on Downtown devised the JAWS system. That's, of course, the uh, Jaffe War Score system for analyzing Major League Baseball players. Jay Jaffe, a longtime contributor to Sports Illustrated. He's the author of the Cooperstown Casebook and these days writes for Fangraphs. We had a chance to talk with Jay about uh, some of this year's candidates for entry into Cooperstown's Baseball Hall of Fame. How's your new puppy working out? Uh, it's working out well, thanks. She's uh, she's gotten very big in the uh, uh, four months since we've owned her, and uh, uh, really taken her place uh, on, on on Team Entropy alongside our two year old daughter. That's fantastic. Glad to hear that. Although 
I, I understand uh, she does not handle the cold as well as you might have hoped. That's correct. Yeah, my my wife had to get her one of those uh, uh, one of those doggy sweaters, which uh, is uh, uh, I guess some, something to be ashamed of if you're if you're in the canine world. I don't know. I, I don't really uh, uh, I don't really follow that along, but uh, um, it, she looks a little ridiculous in it. All right, let's talk about uh, baseball Hall of Fame. It's an interesting ballot this year, and we'll talk about who who should be in. Who do you think will get in, Jay? Uh, who do I think will get in? Well, I think we're we're definitely looking at a, a three man class at the very least, and that'll be Mariano Rivera, Edgar Martinez, and uh, Roy Halladay. I think the suspense lies within whether uh, Mike Messina is going to get in. He's at about eighty two percent right now uh, on the uh, published ballots. Uh, got sixty three and a half percent last year. Uh, to me, it looked like it was going to be a two year climb. Uh, the projections right now that I've seen put him uh, very close on the, on either side of it. So I think that's right now where the suspense is, is going to be. How about Kurt Schilling now? Obviously, uh, some outside factors uh, come into this, but uh, you wrote about him recently on Fangraphs, and this is a guy who's put up great numbers both regular season and one of the most dominant pitchers ever in postseason. What did I see you say that he had eight top five finishes in war in his career? Uh, that sounds about right. I, offhand, um, yeah. I mean, the guy was uh, an expert at missing bats and at run prevention. Didn't always have uh, uh, the best teams uh, behind him in terms of, especially his his years in Philadelphia. But uh, uh, was a monster in the postseason as well. Uh, absolutely great uh, control, top strikeout to walk ratio since they moved the bound to sixty foot six inches. Um, you know, I think in the grand scheme, I think uh, his performance merits induction. Uh, but I do think that uh, he has. Uh, really uh, sabotaged his own candidacy, um, maybe not to the point of completely uh, destroying it, but he's made it hard on himself. Uh, uh, even as uh, we've seen uh, the electorate recognize more pitchers with three, with fewer than 300 wins, um, you know he's, uh, uh, I think, still at least a couple years away from election. You mentioned Mariano Rivera and uh, Bill Ballou, who uh, is retired now, but wrote, I think it was for the Worcester Telegram, has been on our show, um, went public with the fact that he was not voting for Rivera because of his view about how relief pitchers are used. Does that have, does that have any bearing on reality? Well, look, I think it was, you know, I, I could have told you going in, and in fact, I probably did say this uh, in, in, my, in my election preview, uh, that, you know, the big threat, or at least one big threat to the possibility of Rivera being unanimous selection is because there are uh, people who are philosophically opposed to uh, relievers getting into the Hall of Fame on the grounds that their workloads are so much less than, than, than uh, uh, even, you know, top starters who've, who've fallen short. So, I think it's a defensible position in you know in the abstract. I think when you look at Rivera and when you consider his um the body of his postseason work, which we're talking as zero seventy one ERA and hundred and forty innings, about two seasons worth, um, you really have to uh I think uh maybe detach a little bit from uh the uh just that mindset. And I think you also have to realize that, you know, he was the single best reliever uh, of all time, uh, in term, you know, in a, a lot of measures, um, and and they therefore merits induction. But I can understand why uh, uh, Baloo uh, wrote what he did or, or came to the conclusion that he did. 
I'm not sure that his the 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 whole of his defense, which I read, uh, really is that coherent. But uh, just the same, I guess I'm glad he kept his vote in his pocket because uh, uh, it will be interesting to see whether whether Rivera gets unanimous. I don't think he will, but but uh, uh, until it happens, I think we, you know we we have to cover it, and uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, hey Jay, this is uh, Alan Adams here. Uh, I just uh, you were talking about Rivera there for a second, and uh, uh, I'm looking at your uh, at your own uh, virtual ballot. I know you don't actually cast one for another couple of years here, uh, but I see yeah. that you've got Billy Wagner on there as well, and I know you've you've written at length about um, how you feel that Jaws isn't necessarily doesn't work as well for relievers as maybe you'd want to, right. and uh, and you've really uh, invested a lot of time in sort of digging into some other advanced analytics to to try to find ways to. Uh, well, I mean, basically to compare apples to oranges. Yeah, it's, I, I've looked at the win probability stats, and 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 there, uh, Rivera is is number one all time by head and shoulders, and and Wagner is a guy who does very well uh, when you look at the uh, when you look at the the win probability stuff, which has basically means that his managers were using him correctly, you know, in terms of uh, more often than not these were close games. Win probability, you know. Uh, uh, is basically measures the degree of difficulty of uh, a player's appearance, so so that you're you're credited more highly when you're coming into a one-run game uh, than a three-run game. If we're talking same situations, or coming in with runners on base, then uh, uh, then the base is empty. Uh, so you know we do get, uh, I think, uh, you know, an, an alternate measure that's not just based on uh, you know the, the typical inputs, uh, you know, in terms of run prevention and. Uh, um, uh, strikeout rate and and de- you know, with the defensive adjustments and things like that thrown in, it is an alternative way of looking at it. I think Wagner, uh, by my aggregate, which uses wins above replacement and uh, the leverage staff, uh, raises the sixth best reliever of all time. And you know, in my eyes, I think that's good enough. I think, especially we're still you know kind of emerging. The uh, the Hall of Fame standards for relievers are emerging. I think he's definitely better than Lee Smith, who just got in. I think he's better than some of the other relievers who are already in there. So. Uh, I would include him uh, uh, on my ballot. We're talking with Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs here on Danton. Uh, what about some of these uh, infield guys that might be seen as being on the bubble? Uh, Scott Rowland and then a guy who gets a, a, a lot of discussion going, Omar Vizquel. Um, you know, they're obviously both of them renowned for their glove work. One, uh, Vizquel won 11 gold gloves, and, and I think Rowland numbers eight. Uh, the defensive metrics support Rowland's uh, uh, ex, you know, claimed excellency. I think a little bit better. He's fourth all time in the third or fourth all time in fielding runs at shortstop, whereas Vizquel is something like uh, in in the somewhere between 15 and 20. Uh, Roland obviously had the bat to support it as well. Uh, very very good hitter, and and uh, uh, I have him as the 10th best third baseman of all time in my Jaws system. Uh, Vizquel, on the other hand, is down in the in the 30s or even 40s among shortstops in, in his position and. I don't see him as being worthy of a vote. I see Roland as being worthy of a vote, but um, the electorate uh, in aggregate has looks at the, the looks at it the other way. Last year, Vizquel got about thirty-seven percent, which is a pretty solid number uh, for a uh, first-year candidate. Uh, Roland was was uh, somewhere closer to about ten percent. Uh, obviously, that does not bode well. Uh, he, both of those guys have gained some support this time, but <coughs> I don't see my guy Roland getting in anytime soon. Uh, it's going to take. Um, uh, a whole lot of uh, uh, rounds of convincing uh, voters to change their minds on him. Uh, and I think, on the other hand, Vizquel is probably uh, slowly going to be on a path towards election.
And how about guys like Larry Walker and Fred McGriff? <laughs> uh, Larry Walker uh, right now is engaged in, in, in a pretty fascinating trajectory. This is something I'm going to write about maybe later this week or early next week. Um, until last year, Walker had never broken out of the, the low 20s in, in percentage. Last year, he surged to 34% or so. Uh, this year, he's, he's gotten uh, about 65% of the published ballots so far, which is uh, pretty unsustainable, but it probably means he's going to get somewhere above 50%. Um, we've never seen anybody uh, get from, 50, from low 50s to, 70, to, to 75% in one year. But we also, you know, we're, we're seeing something now with this uh, change from 15 years of eligibility to 10, where we've seen some urgency among uh, the electorate when it comes to some of these candidates who've kind of gotten screwed over, guys like Tim Raines and Edgar Martinez uh, and now Walker. And I think we're, we might be in, in the midst of, of, of something of a change here. And I'm, you know, I'm proud to say that those are three guys that I have uh, written extensively about. They're all in the Cooperstown casebook and, uh, um, you know, if, if people are reading my work and, and, and uh, changing their mind uh, uh, with, with the help of, the, of, of those articles, then, then that's great. But uh, um, Walker's in his final year next year. I still think that he probably falls short with the writers. But this surge, I think, bodes well long term in terms of possibly being elected by uh, the Today's Game Committee. Uh, for anybody who didn't see it, I thought there's some fascinating names came up uh, in your posts on Fangraphs about the one-and-done club and some really talented guys who uh, maybe are not Hall of Fame worthy but had solid careers at Vernon Wells, Michael Young, Rick Ann Keel, some very interesting guys there. Yeah, it's you know, it, it, it's funny. I it, it would be very easy to, to not write about these guys uh, because they don't really have any, any real claim on a spot on the ballot. I'm not, and I'm not... Uh, here to make an argument uh, that that uh, uh, that somebody should reconsider. But what I found is that people really enjoy just being reminded about these guys, and you know that uh, uh, they had this you know this odd claim to fame or that. And and I really enjoy the research. Today I was writing about Darren Oliver, um, you know, who pitched in the major leagues for 20 years and really, you know, was as a starter got knocked around for an ERA well above five, but as a reliever really enjoyed this great second act. Actually retired. Um, after being released by three teams and then came back and, and from age 35 to age 41 uh, went to the playoffs every year as a lefty reliever. And, and uh, it's just fun to remember stuff like that, and people seem to enjoy that series, and uh, uh, it rewards the effort that I put into it. So uh, uh, I'm proud that it means something to people. Uh, Jay, we'd be remiss if we didn't also get a little beer recommendation from you, as we always like to do. What have you enjoyed lately? Oh boy, geez. Uh, let me think about that one for a second. Um, I would, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been uh, enjoying a lot of stuff from our local Threes Brewing uh, Company um, uh, here in uh, in downtown Brooklyn uh, the last uh, several months. But uh, uh, I know that you guys like the dark beers, and and uh, uh, I've had uh, a few really good ones lately. One of them. Uh, that I that I broke out over the holidays was the Game of Thrones Take the Black Stout, which actually came out several years ago, and I'd been, I think I was gifted a bottle that was a few years old, and I had no idea it was that old, so I broke that out, and it was just absolutely fantastic. Uh, this is from Omegang Brewing uh, uh, in Cooperstown. Um, another one uh, that I had over the holidays that I liked a lot, kind of a, an old friend, is the Brooklyn uh, Black Ops Barrel Aged uh, 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 Imperial Stout. Mm. Uh, good stuff. Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs and the author of the Cooperstown Casebook, talking baseball with us here 
on Downtown the Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to the people at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength to bring the podcast to you every week. And we'll catch you next time on Downtown.